Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. I want to welcome everyone to this podcast. We are recording this on November 16th, so we're only a week out from this most recent apostolic letter that was issued by Pope Francis. And we have with us today an expert who has been a consultant to many religious institutes in very many capacities over the last few decades. We're here with Eileen Jaramillo, who has a doctorate in canon law. Eileen, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today. It's good to be with you, Donna. So Eileen, this, this new apostolic letter came out. There were lots of discussions already going on on our canon law listserv that we were part of. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what Authenticum Charismatis did with regard to changes in canon law. Well, what it did was it amended uh, Canon 579 of the Code of Canon Law. Um, This doesn't come as any sort of a surprise because of the fact that uh, there was a rescript on this same canon in um, 2016, May 11th. And uh, in that rescript, it speaks about. this consolidative process uh, being necessary for the validity of establishing a diocesan institute. Uh, So this does not come as a surprise. What it does do though is it accents that rescript and it provides some clarification from what was contained in the rescript. So it's good to uh, see that this is issued uh, by Pope Francis and that he decided to issue it modo proprio on his own initiative and it's signed by him. So it's a pretty, pretty serious change. It's an interesting fact that you point out that there was already a rescript in 2016. So let's look at Canon 579, the approved English translation for what we have printed in our CLSA Code of Canon Law reads, diocesan bishops, each in his own territory, can erect institutes of consecrated life by formal decree, provided that the apostolic see has been consulted. That last phrase seems to be the operative piece that has been changed from having been consulted. When the Holy See issues one of these changes, it's generally in Latin, and then canonists have to strive to try to figure out what is the best translation of that Latin phrase. And then the bishop's conference, Episcopal conference, usually uh, will have to give approval. Now, I understand that you got an English translation of the changes made. Can you, can you share that with our listeners? Sure. Um, this translation is diocesan bishops, each in his own territory, can validly erect institutes of consecrated life by formal decree, provided that the apostolic see has given its written permission. That's a pretty drastic change, if if you really listen to those words about getting written permission, don't you think? 
It is a, a change, and the reason it's important is because there were some bishops who were sending all the required documentation, and it's quite a list, requirements that have to be sent. And then they get a letter back, and there is deep concern about what it is that they want to do. And some of them have thought about what's contained in that letter, and they've decided to go forward anyway and erect the, the group as an institute of diocesan right. And they believed that they could do that because it just simply said consult. And the rescript from 2016 didn't make it clear that it has to be approval. So that's what's so important about this amendment of Canon 579. It's that it has to be given written approval. And that's not surprising, Donna, because the faith will have a right to know whether this group is really authentic. If they have an authentic spirituality, if their founders are authentic, and uh, we know that some of them have not been authentic and they've caused all kinds of problems and then they've had to be suppressed and uh, the suppression was made public and it's been scandalous for faithful. I would think that in whether it's in the United States or other parts of the world, if there is a group, because before you get to the stage of becoming an actual religious institute, you would have gone through kind of uh, association of the faithful stage. So this could have taken many, many years so that a bishop and those who consult with him may be thinking, oh, they've been around for 20 years. They've got to be okay. And so they simply move forward with contacting the Holy See, but then also move ahead simply because they've been around for so long and this is just the next step. Yes, that's what it seems to, to be like. Sometimes they haven't reached some of the criteria that the Holy See has established. And the criteria is pretty high to reach in order to be uh, erected as an institute of diocesan right. And then it goes higher if it's an, you know, an institute of pontifical right. So sometimes bishops don't understand, especially the numbers that uh, the Holy See requires. That's an interesting point. So canon law is universal. So this is not just the United States, but do you think that is this sort of um, an eye-opening thing for bishops in the United States? It's for bishops all over the world. I remember having very long conversations with our uh, duly loved uh, Father Frank Morrissey. And Frank was always saying to me, you know, Eileen, these bishops are doing this on a regular basis and they get caught when they go on their ad limina visits. And then the Holy See, uh, particularly uh, Sickle Cell, begins asking them questions. And one of the questions that they start to ask is in regards to the financial resources of the group, the number of people, and if they're continuing to attract vocations. And those are, you know, some pretty serious concerns in addition to the way they can be misleading the faithful of a particular diocese. So Holy See is concerned because these groups, when they're erected as an institute or a society, they're a part of the patrimony of the church. And that's very important for the Holy See to have a part in this discernment because this isn't just something limited to a particular diocese. 
but it affects the universal church as well. And I think it rounds out the picture because only the Holy See can suppress an institute. Isn't that also canonically provided for? Yes, that's provided for in canon law in regards to uh, suppressing and erecting, you know, an institute. So the bishop has greater authority when it comes to um, public association of the faithful or a private association of the faithful. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that go on there. Absolutely. And in, in a very practical sense, as I'm looking at the English translation of this apostolic letter that is on the Vatican website, and it does say the faithful have the right to be warned by the pastors about the authenticity of charisms and the reliability. In some of these instances, there are some groups that go out because they're a charity, and then they're going to solicit money from you know, fundraising and all the more reason for the faithful to be able to know that they've been scrutinized. One of the ways that the Holy See does know that they've been scrutinized is one of the requirements is that there is a letter that's sent to the Holy See by the bishop of the diocese and also by the bishops of other dioceses where this public association now asking to be erected as a diocesan institute where they might be. And those bishops are reflecting on the following matter, that usefulness, the stability, the discipline of the group, formation of members, the government, administration of goods, liturgical and sacramental dimensions, and a sense of being with the church, particularly in regards to ecclesiastical discipline. Now, sometimes when a bishop from a diocese gets this request and the group doesn't have its mother house in that particular diocese, but they have a group of people, I've been contacted about that. And what that bishop normally wants is he wants to read through the constitutions so that he has a sense of what's, of what's going on. So a greater ability to respond to these questions. It's called due diligence, I would think. Vigilance, you know, about what's going on with a particular group. And sometimes I know bishops who've made comments about what's contained in the Constitution and that something in the Constitution should be revised before the Holy See says yes. And uh, oftentimes when the letter comes back and they give approval, they will make recommendations about some changes that need to be made in the Constitution itself. I think that would be helpful guidance and that any bishop would probably appreciate having that knowledge that the Holy See has also looked it over and from all that it has seen. I also enjoy what happens when it goes over to the Holy See too, because there are two consultors that look at everything and then it goes really to a congresso. So there's a real collegial spirit there that's uh, transpiring. It's not just one person who's giving feedback to the local bishop. And um, if there's something in regards to doctrine, it can be sent to the CDF. Do you think that when the Holy See is looking at, let's say, this packet that comes over from a bishop, are they looking to see, is there anything new when we talk about the charism, or would this group be better consulting with an existing group that perhaps has the very same stated charism? 
That's a very important question because um, even in this apostolic letter, they talk about communities that are brought into existence, which might be causing fragmentation if there are too many of them. That's an interesting quote, and it gets quoted frequently. It's really coming from Vita Consecrata, that the vitality of new institutes and societies must be judged by the authority of the church, which has the responsibility of examining them in order to discern the authenticity of the purpose for their foundation and to prevent, this is the important part, the proliferation of institutions similar to one another with the consequent risk of harmful fragmentation into excessively small groups. This is not the first time that we've seen all of these small groups coming into existence. Uh, we saw that during the time when two major orders were in the process of coming into existence, and that was with the Dominicans and the Franciscans. There were a lot of small groups running around at that time, and the Holy See was saying the same thing. And it would say, no new group is to be formed. We will not allow any new group to be formed. So the question becomes, how did Dominic and Francis come into existence? Because they were brand new and they were required by the Pope to take one of the existing rules. That's how the Dominicans got the rule of St. Augustine in, in addition to their constitution. So, but once those two were formed and began to spread, then all those other little groups died off. It is interesting to go back and look at history. And tell us about the 1917 Code's predecessor, Canon 492, I believe. Yes, Canon 492 is what was the canon from the 17 Code. And just a portion of it here says bishops, but not the vicar capitulary or the vicar general, can found religious congregations, but they shall not found them or allow them to be founded without consulting the apostolic see. So that was much stronger than the translation that you read, you know, from the code. So it, it looks like in, in the Holy See's experience from the 17 code to today that we needed to go back to something that was much stronger. Why now? Do you think in rescript still wasn't enough? The problem persisted. We know that laws don't get made or changed willy-nilly. There had to be a reason. So can we assume that this was still somewhat being abused? I think there have been problems um, over the years, as uh, Father Frank Morrissey spoke about. But also, um, if you remember, uh, he's deceased now, but if you remember Bishop Joseph Galante, um, he um, was in Rome, and he worked on that in that congregation for Institutes of Concentrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. When he came back to the United States, he was already saying that bishops are erecting these groups, and he had a real concern about how this was not in keeping with the charism that belongs to the laity. 
And that was a very serious concern of his. In fact, many, many years ago, he gave a presentation at one of our canon law conventions just about that very issue. So it was his experience that bishops were not really discerning whether or not these groups really are lay people, you know, like the St. Vincent de Paul Society or the Knights of Columbus or various women's groups. Should a bishop really be erecting a group as a religious institute, or should this be an endeavor that is on the part of the laity? He said it for the United States that these groups began being erected when we had immigrants coming to the United States. And his real concern was, was that a legitimate reason to erect these groups? So um, this talks about institutes of consecrated life, which we know are religious institutes and then secular institutes. What about societies of apostolic life? Does this apply to them also? It also applies to uh, societies of apostolic life because there's a canon in the code uh, which refers societies of apostolic life back to this particular canon in terms of their erection. So it's very, very clear. Looks like that might be Canon 732. There's a few differences in what you send over to the Holy See um, in terms of whether it's a religious institute, a secular institute, or a Society of Apostolic Life. A couple of differences. And I know that what you're going to post um, on um, the uh, website along with this podcast will be very helpful in, in clarifying some of that. Absolutely. Thanks, Eileen, for being with us today. It's always good to be with you, Donna, and to do something for the CLSA.